0: You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are...
1: My name is Adam Pryor. I work at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. I hope that when I die, someone will put me in the mushroom
2: burial suit invented by Jim Ray Lee. Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte, and see I would be uh, cremated and put into the hilt of the first real lightsaber
3: Rachel Jackson a goodest Israel congregation Henderson film North Carolina and after I die I want a traditional Jewish burial so buried in some sort of decomposing box I don't really care if it's pine or cardboard um, and yeah, just to be buried in the ground.
4: Nothing, just simple.
0: Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania. And when I die, I want to be composted.
4: Kendra Holtmore, PhD candidate at Boston University. And when I die, I want half of my body to be pressed into a gemstone that will become an heirloom of my family. And the other half of my body will be... Uh, <laughs> buried in one of those tree pods that grows into a forest. I can't remember the name of the person who invented these tree pods, but it's a similar idea, I think, to the mushroom suit. But you become a, a forest of death. That
1: is oddly specific.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. There's a wonderful story in Greek mythology about that.
4: With the forest of. death. I just death, want to
2: point out that all, you, <laughs> that all of you, that all of you came up with something. Like, somewhat reasonable? I mean, I I just wanted to play. <laughs> <laughs> How cool would that be? Instead of being, like, displayed on someone's, you know, mantle in a box or an urn, that could be displayed as a lightsaber hilt. There
0: you go. Or I can just give my carbon back to the earth that sustained me.
2: Yeah, see, I mean that's probably what will happen. But I wanted to fantasize. More. I'm hung up on the
0: gemstone. So
2: <laughs> okay, Kendra, tell us, <laughs> tell us about
0: death. I know which which half of you is going to be a gemstone. I wonder.
4: Uh, I'll leave that up to the, <laughs>
0: the left half. Is it, is it like a
4: personal <laughs> thing?
0: Like certain parts
2: are you. <laughs> The person chopping you up? (laughs) I thought they would, like, split out the ashes and put it together. That's not not what I envisioned. This arm, and how about this foot?
0: That's absolutely the way this has to go now. It's like, don't cremate and turn you into a diamond. Just take, like, your arms and legs and squish them and see what happens. Yeah, let's just squeeze them all together. Right. You're going to create a gemstone.
4: Whichever parts of me would make the best gemstone. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Um, Uh. So, death. Uh, (laughs) I guess this is a good segue. It's as good as it's going to get. Yeah, so we're talking about death today. And uh, there's so much that we could talk about. So let me just say that... Um, I think that death is a pretty fun uh, subject to talk about, mostly because a lot of my own work is about death, (laughs) Um, at least implicitly. So um, it's just – so so a lot of the stuff that I do comes out of this um, social psychological theory called terror management theory, and that's terror, not what people often – Yeah. Some people hear me say that and they think I am saying Tara marriage management theory or like tarot management theory. But no, it's terror. (laughs) T-E-R-R-O-R. Like you're terrified.
2: I do like tarot.
4: (laughs) Tarot. That Um, sounds kind of cool. Yeah, that's a different thing. <laughs> um, but terror management theory is um, a, a theory that was first proposed in the 80s by a social psychologists. Um, and the whole there's there's a lot that has been done over the last several decades on it. But the basic idea is that when people are primed to uh, think about death or they're exposed to some kind of trigger that causes them to reflect on death um and there are explicit and implicit ways of doing this. But basically, these uh, death triggers or um, what they would call mortality salience triggers, um, they they make us more defensive. And uh, these defense mechanisms can look a lot of different ways. But um, the basic idea is that, like, people don't want to die, <laughs> whether we're talking about physical death or even, like, Uh, a more like metaphorical, figurative kind of death. So think, you know, apart from dying in your body, maybe you're also another kind of death would be like uh, total social isolation and exclusion. That's a kind of like social death. So there's something that it's it's not we're not just talking about like physical death, even though that's a huge part of it, but also, um, you know, a kind of ego death, if you will, where, what it means to be human, the connectedness we feel in community, like there are ways of dying that disconnect us from those pieces of what it means to be human as well. So anyway, terror management theory is uh, something that touches on all these different kinds of death and shows how people become more defensive of the things that are meaningful to them or the things that make us feel Uh, like we have a purpose and uh, a sense of significance in the world. And when we don't have those things, those ties of significance, those like foundational building blocks of meaning and community and purpose, um, that we are a lot more vulnerable to like psychological dysfunction and other forms of dysfunction and um, even death. And so – there's, um, you know, all kinds of ways of, of, of testing this, but just to give like one example of um, what this means is uh, there was a study years ago where a group of researchers, they they took a group of um, Christians and they divided the Christians in half um, and half of the Christians were exposed to some kind of uh, mortality salience or uh, like death trigger. Um, and usually that's a, a couple of questions where you're being asked explicitly to reflect on what you think about death, like what you think will happen to your body when you die, stuff like that. And then the other half of the Christians uh, were not asked those questions. And then all of the Christians. Uh, were brought back together and given a series of questionnaires in which they were asked to evaluate an outgroup. In this case, that outgroup was another uh, separate group of uh, Jewish people. And what they found was that the, the Christian group who had been exposed to the mortality salience trigger, that they had uh, slightly harsher evaluations against the, the Jewish group, um, than the, the half of the Christians that were not exposed to a death trigger. And so this is, like, first of all, just to say this has nothing to do with, like, like, implicit, like, inherently being, like, Christian or Jewish. Like, you could have put in, like, a Canadian, American, like, any kind of, like, identifier. But this goes to show that, like, religion is often a very, uh, like, salient and important and strong form of identification for people. But what this showed was that, you know, whenever we're uh, threatened in some way with these like ideas of death that we really uh, we want to like strengthen our in-group markers and we become a little bit more suspicious of ideas or people or communities that are different from us or that threaten what we see as like the nature of the universe, the order of the cosmos. And so um, this is just like one example in, in hundreds of studies that have been done at this point that that show this idea. And like I said, you could do this with a number of, of things, but um, I chose the the religious uh, example because of, well, what our conversations usually turn to. So um, the, the yeah. point, though, is just to say, like, we as people, we think about death a lot. And we, uh, a lot of what we do in our lives, we're trying to, like, make um, you know make meaning and like find a sense of belonging in the world and that death is just like part of being human and it's something that at some point we will have to think about more explicitly um and have to really reckon with and so um that is just like s- some background uh, I guess into like why this uh this last um, episode in our what is this series? Medical ethics is that
0: loosely. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs>
4: um, uh, but yeah, just to give a little background onto like how, how to like orient to this conversation about like the nature of death, the concept of death, and how it how it can be a really powerful uh, motivator of of um, human behavior. Um, and so yeah, I guess like one of the one of the stories that I was thinking about, um, and this is sort of transitioning into a slightly different direction than what I was just talking about, but uh, I was thinking a lot about the the death with dignity movement um, this week. Um, and uh, that, for those who don't know, like there's a lot of, uh, I think every year, there there's still like ongoing discussion and debate about how this looks in policy. But um the state of Oregon was uh, the first state to implement a policy. I can't remember the year, to, if anyone knows that off the top of their, their head, um, for, feel free to say, but we can find that later. But they, um, Oregon was the first state to implement a policy in which people who were terminally ill uh, were are able to ask for a lethal dose of medication to end their lives so that they don't have to suffer and that they, it, it, you know, the, the purpose of this policy was to give terminally ill patients a sense of control and a sense of, you know, um, dignity and normalcy in their last days with family. And so the, um, the story that I had read long ago was um, a, a woman named Brittany Maynard, or Maynard, I'm not sure exactly how to say her name, but she, um, she died by this uh, voluntary lethal dose of medication on, I think in 2014. But before that, she uh, had been diagnosed with um, an aggressive brain cancer, and she was 29, and she and her husband, you know, they were young and they knew that there was nothing that was going to save her. And brain cancer is, um, you know, just it's a, a like a horrifying thing to go through and would lead to a lot of suffering and a lot of um, deterioration in her body and in her like mental capability and personality. And she didn't want her family to have to Um, watch her suffer that way. And she didn't want to, um, sorry, my line's going off here. And she didn't want to suffer that way. And so she uh, and her husband established residency in Oregon so that she could participate in the uh, Death with Dignity um, Act. And so anyway, this this has uh, led to a lot of uh, conversations uh, in in a, a lot of different like religious communities and and medical communities about like what this means, um, like what are the implications of something like this, um, and this is just like one example in in medicine uh, of like conversations about death. Like there are other things that. You know, we could talk about like defining what death even is because that has changed over the years as well. But I was thinking a lot about this uh, conversation because there's something that seems uh, almost like paradoxical, I guess, about it, you know, and I think that's part of what the controversy brings out is, um, we feel like, you know, especially, Many people from religious communities who say, "Well, all life is um, is sacred, and we should, you know, uh, stand by the sanctity of human life and, and things like that." And so, how does something like the Death with Dignity Act violate that principle, or even, you know, uphold it? And and so. I just wanted to, like, make that our example and to maybe see, um, especially like the clergy in the room, if what this has looked like in your communities, if this is something that you've come across and how that conversation has um, has played out. Because when I think about it, I I think a lot about how, you know, in in, um, you know, like my academic work, what it means to look at something like the death of dignity, like assisted suicide issue and how that is a way of um, like fighting death or like, is it a way of fighting death or giving in to death? I think that's sort of the controversy here and that there's like a lot of different ways to sort of analyze and interpret what this very personal decision actually means and it's just so interesting because you you can you can really understand it i think from several different angles that it it's like a fight against the suffering and the humiliation that the the dying process can bring so that you you know maybe like remain in your friends and family's memories as a vital, like healthy person. Um, whereas other people s- see it as like, maybe a, a kind of giving up and it's just like, so it's such a personal issue. And so, so yeah, that's, that's what I wanted to just sort of set on the table to get us, get us going.
3: These are really great things that you're talking about, Kendra. Um, and I'll say that I have taught about dignity and death from a Jewish perspective. Um, and I want to throw in a couple, Couple. you you posed a couple of dichotomies, and I, I think there's far more, there, there are several other dichotomies as well. Um, and so I just want to look at that. When we think about death, dignity in dying right which is a better terminology than physician-assisted suicide um we're giving somebody dignity well we asked we have to ask ourselves the questions that in the last hundred years we have progressed in our medical intervention in such incredible ways that we prolong people's lives Hmm? right i mean that's vaccines, antibiotics, surgery, right? Just simple things like that, um, that have prolonged people's life. So from from my perspective, there's really this question of, are we prolonging suffering? And is suffering part of life? And what part of it? Right? So those, those pieces. And I... I feel I have to live into the role that I have set up for myself, and I want to share a story. <laughs> if that is okay, this comes from um, this comes from Talmud, of course, because um, that's where I like to quote a lot of. Um, and if anyone wants the full full citation, Babylonian Talmud tractate boat page one hundred and four a. And this this will lead into part of the conversation that I was thinking. A maidservant of Rabbi Yehudah Hanasi went to the roof and said, the upper realms are requesting the presence of Rabbi Yehudah Hanasi, and the lower realms are requesting the presence of Rabbi Yehudah Hanasi. May it be the will of God that the lower worlds should impose their will upon the upper worlds. However, when she saw how many times he would enter the bathroom, remove his phylacteries, exit them back on, and how he was suffering so with his intestinal disease. She said, May it be the will of God that the upper worlds should impose their will upon the lower worlds. And the sages, meanwhile, would not be silent, meaning they would not refrain from begging for mercy so that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi would not die. So she took a jug, threw it from the roof to the ground. And due to the sudden noise, the sages were momentarily silent and refrained from their begging of mercy. And in that moment, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi died. So we use this in modernity, we use this story to say, who are we doing this for? Who are we prolonging the life and therefore the suffering for? Is it because we can't bear to let this person die or is it because that's what is necessary? So that's that's one way we use this story. The second way we use this understanding is from an ethical standpoint, um, medical ethics has this idea of personal autonomy, resources, um, use of adequate resources and do no harm, non-maleficence. If a person is clearly suffering, is it not the job of the physician to do no harm? Right. So we really ask, we really have to understand, are we causing harm by allowing someone to live? So having said that, a couple of case questions uh, that I was thinking about. If there is a person who has, you know, the example that Kendra gave, um, Right, so this woman has a brain tumor. Let's say she now develops, completely incidentally, um, just randomly, has nothing to do with the brain tumor. She develops severe uh, bronchitis that turns into aspirational pneumonia. Right? Do you treat the pneumonia? Non-notorical. Do you treat the pneumonia? Not we're not again we're not touching the brain tumor. I, we're not doing anything. Do you treat pneumonia?
2: I would still defer to the patient's wishes. If the if the patient says, "Hey, I don't want you to treat my pneumonia," and then okay, I could probably you. argue against that. It's you. Oh. Well, probably. Especially okay. if I've made the decision that I'm going to continue on with my life as long as I possibly can until the cancer finally gets me, then yeah, okay. I would treat it. Yep. Okay. Zach?
0: If, as a, a doctor, you do what the patient wants, but if it were me, I don't know if I would. I might see that as a, uh, a grace.
4: Pender or Adam? Yeah, I guess it depends how much time I thought I had left, but... Um I'm inclined to answer uh I guess similarly to, to Zach that maybe I would if I if I still had like a good bit of quality of life left. Um so yeah, I guess I would lean more towards yes.
1: I don't have enough information to decide. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean like I, I sure. <laughs> that was too cheeky. Um, All the
3: information you have,
1: so no, like, so like, <clears throat> what I think about are the answer I might give to that question look very different when I am twenty nine versus thirty nine versus forty nine versus fifty nine. It looks really different depending on what my familial situation looks like, and to me, it also looks really different based on the. uh the, this specific type of brain cancer and its prognosis. So there's, there's a spectrum of I might answer yes or no.
4: Could go either way. What about you, Rachel? Could go either way. Um,
3: if I were the patient in this case, I would not treat the pneumonia.
2: Can you explain why?
3: Yeah. If I know I'm going to die soon, right? We're all going to die. But if I know that I'm going to die, and it's going to be a terrible dying experience, I wouldn't want to leave that for anyone, including myself. Pneumonia is considered old man's friend.
0: Right? Right. That's why I mentioned it. I see it as a grace. Yeah. But I would oh. still want it uh, not to be cured, but I feel like I would want some kind of comfort at least in it because yeah, yeah, you're basically yeah. drowning.
3: You, you are, yeah. you are. I mean, there's, that's the difference, right? You can cure most people. I shouldn't say most times. Pneumonia has the ability to be cured, right? It's not an automatic death sentence if you get pneumonia. But um, there are plenty of symptom relief things that you can also take, you know? It's also just like have enough morphine that you don't care. <laughs> you don't feel any of it. Um, I, I bring this up because there are real life examples, right? They're real life, right? There's a, there's a responsa that we look at. Responsa is the Jewish way of saying, hey, I have this question that doesn't actually have an answer. Hey, rabbis, can you give me an answer? Where it talks about a 95 year old woman who has Alzheimer's, severe, severe Alzheimer's. And they compare that to a 16 month old who has severe Canavan's disease, right? Both of them will die within the year. What do you do with them? Does their happiness matter? Does how long they live matter? What matters when we make these decisions? And who is making these decisions? Right? In the case that Kendra provided for the death and dignity, the patient themselves is making the call. Oftentimes, when we are faced with questions like this, the patient themselves is not the one capable of making that call for one reason or another again in in terms of the death dignity in Oregon and Washington Oregon I just looked up my notes uh, was 97 Washington was 09 um so both those two states have it. Um, and in those cases, the patient themselves must be the one. It cannot be a guardian. And there's lots of doctors involved and psychologists. And it has to be a, a hospice situation of six months or less verified by multiple doctors. I mean, it's really above board. This is not the 1990s Kevorkian questions, which is a different question entirely. Uh, but I know that that's clouded those of us that remember those years very differently mm-hmm than these laws in Washington and Oregon, Washington state and Oregon. Um, So I think it's, I think it's all of those pieces. And then when we look at the question of what are we doing for prolonging life, if someone, you know, (laughs) what is death? And I, so let me just answer that real quickly. I know I'm jumping all around and for our listeners, I apologize that I'm just sort of chunking my statements here i unfortunately will have to will have to exit and um leave this wonderful conversation so i just want to put in a couple more thoughts
0: without um, rachel it's going to turn dark it's going to get dark just biting my it's going to get dark
3: so <laughs> <laughs> um, i'll have to listen to your statements when they come out then um what what do we classify as death a long time ago, it was when you stopped breathing, and then it became when you stopped having a heartbeat, and then mm. it's when your brain ceases to have brain waves, right? And and that's where that's where we're at now, um, is is brainwave death. So if your heart is still beating, your body is technically living, alive, but your brain is not and cannot be. We don't have a way to resurrect that. So what do we understand death to be? And this is where I see hope in our society. This is where I'm hoping we will get to go, that rather than asking these questions of being that we're removing the sanctity of life, we're redefining what life can be. So here's the optimism that you're just going to have to hold on to for just a little bit, because I can't I can't end the episode this way, because I'm not going to be there. But It's optimism that rather than being afraid of death, which is what so much of our society is dealing with, and as a clergy person, facing one's mortality is a question that we face a lot, and I know other Mm -hmm. clergy are the same way, and recognizing that, you know, bring on the Lion King, it's the circle of life, it's the circle of life where we're really looking at life, and that death is just a part of that. So getting down and drilling down, what are the things that we're afraid of, and it's it's often a fear of difficulty in dying, or it's often a fear of an afterlife for some people. <laughs> um, so that's not—it's—it's it's not just death that we're afraid of in our society. With all these medical techniques, we have the ability to to say, okay, now we have the control. Right, we have the ability to. Um, yeah how are we using that control how are we taking ownership of ourselves and our life which includes this portion of death so that's all for me (laughs) good luck
0: I'll jump on the, the the religious aspect because the uh, United Church of Christ actually has made yeah, you have. statements about <laughs> this topic. Because, of course, we have.
2: <laughs> you guys make statements on a lot of topics, right? <laughs> you know,
0: I'm not that's not a complaint. That's just... No. And you know why we do that is because the United Church of Christ is a congregational denomination, which means that the national setting has no power to enforce anything on local churches. So when we get together every other year for General Synod and we make these grand statements of of witness and whatnot, there's no actual accountability that has to come with that. We can just say these things and then send it to a committee to make a study on it and send out materials to churches. And so unlike other denominations where when they say something, they actually have to do something about it, we can just say a lot of things. (laughs) So that's kind of nice. But we did in 2007 have a resolution um, on the – let's see. The resolution was called Legalization of Physician Aid in Dying. And as a result of that, they, um, they voted in to affirm this, which sent it to a committee to do research on the topic and to create a six-week study guide for small groups in churches. Um, it was designed to be used during Lent, which is a time in which traditionally we imagine ourselves in the tomb with Christ Christ. Um, and looking forward to resurrection. And so it's very theologically focused. Um, I will put a link in, in, in the show notes. Um, but, you know, one of the things that it really focuses on is that Christians should not be afraid of death. Death and resurrection is kind of our thing like it's it's an important part of the Christian tradition and story. And so if we believe that death is not a final thing but a transition into something else, then um, how one's life ends is less imp- is not all that important. And so whether that person dies by natural causes or dies um, in physician assisted ways, um, the, it is still a transition into into what is next and we believe that people are more than just their physical bodies and so um, keeping a physical body alive is not inherently more virtuous than allowing a physical body to die and so we came down on the side of of supporting um, but also in an informed way
4: Zach just to get out a like a clarifying uh question maybe because i think what a lot of what we've been talking about is um you know the the policies and statements that are for uh, this kind of um you know choice um in deliberating like how someone wants to die but just in case there's any confusion for people who didn't like grow up in in a a community where there was a lot of opposition to this. Um, I just wanted to like put out there some of the ways that people have been thinking about um, like aid and dying. And, and I personally didn't grow up with a ton of conversation around this. So um, I'll just say like, from, from what I uh, understand, like some of the verses, I guess, that, uh, were that that could be used to like deny someone the ability to have like their own um, like authority in determining when they could die if they were terminally ill or versus like one in um, or several I guess in the New Testament but I'll I'll just read one which is in first Corinthians um, 3 16 through 17 and it says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And and so it's like verses like that, that I have these vague memories of people sort of using that as like the theological argument of like, well, someone shouldn't have um, – someone shouldn't be able to make the decision to die before their time because, you know, like the the idea that your body is not your own and that you just have to like live until like God decides that it's not your time anymore. Um, And so that's, that's, uh, that's my memory of like that, how that discussion went. But like, what else is there, Zach? I feel like you probably have more um, like experiences and memories of how people have maybe argued this, does that sound pretty pretty right to you
0: it does um, i I was taught as a kid that um, taking any human life is a sin um, and so taking your own human life is a sin, and because you took the life and then died with that sin having not the opportunity to repent from it, then anyone who took their own life, whether in this setting or in, you know, any other way would end up in hell was what I was taught in no uncertain terms. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Which I think I've mentioned in a previous episode before that my mom's explanation to me was that anyone who, um, takes their own life, their brain typically has, uh, Some issues going on, and uh, God would see that in the same way that God would see the brain of someone with Down syndrome who who doesn't have the mental capacity to understand the ancient creeds or you know like um, something like that. And it's also as I reflect back now, I think about how those same people who would tell me that taking a life is a sin also found ways of getting around it when it was the death penalty or war. Um, They found ways of theologically explaining those things, but Hmm. not typically um, suicide, whether physician-assisted or otherwise, or abortion. Those were the two that were like, there's no way around that. But war and death penalty, they often found theological ways around it. And that's usually what we do, isn't it? (laughs) when we when our worldview supports something we find a way of making our theology mm-hmm. support it
2: so we cherry pick yeah this this part supports my my conclusion so I'm gonna love this part even if many other parts don't support it I'll ignore those hmm. yeah and yeah.
4: I think that um, what you just said that too like that, that also resonates I remember some of my um, like early conversations uh, saying that exact thing like about people going to hell when they make that decision. And I I think what is, what was always absent from those conversations, those like theological interpretations, it seemed like there was a conflation of all the circumstances in which someone might choose to like take their life. And um, obviously it's like a super sensitive subject and really complicated. But I think that
0: Mm. like
4: a lot of what we've been talking about here right now is um you know the idea that like we're talking about a a reduction in suffering or like the attempt to reduce suffering and like a a, f- a focus on like quality of life rather than quantity of life um which you know still still tricky still controversial but that that's really i think the core of uh what people are are thinking about when they like support something like the Death with Dignity Act. And um, it's it's, I think it does and in, in a lot of cases come down to,, uh, are you are you emphasizing quality <laughs> or quantity? And it's not always easy to like separate those things out, but that's where I see the difference and, and maybe like the the core of some of the disagreement about like whether this is, a good thing
2: Mm.
0: i think i I would be really interested in hearing um different points of view based on profession yeah because i think a couple of years ago this whole topic would have made me very uncomfortable but i'm death is just such a part of my life as a pastor of a primarily older congregation um, hmm. all, all day, all week, all, all, year. I, I'm, I'm with the dead and the dying and it has lost its sting. Death itself is no longer something that really terrifies me. Um, it's, it's become this kind of more beautiful part of being alive. Um, this transition that, It's hard to explain, because then it makes you sound callous and uh, a little dead inside. But I think it's one of the most beautiful experiences when I can be present with someone at the end of their life. Um, It is this holy and sacred thin space when somebody is breathing their last breaths. So I'm not afraid of it anymore, (laughs) you know. Hmm. Plus, I live with a pastor who used to be a, a hospice chaplain. So, like... We talk about death around the dining room table.
4: (laughs) Just your everyday dinner conversation.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I almost kind of like the idea of getting to choose when you go, because then you're not uh, then you're not worrying about the process of dying. Adam. Oh, Uh,
1: Zach, what do you mean? Like death became a part of life. You said that. Which is only interesting to me because Rachel said it, too. Is that, I, yeah, exactly. Um, that's, that's exactly what I'm after. All
0: right. So <laughs> so, I did a uh, CPE, which is Clinical Pastoral Education, at Je- Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. And my very first day, I was training with one of the chaplains. I walked into a room because she had been called in, and the woman had died just Maybe 15 minutes before we got there. And I didn't know that. And I'm standing in the room and somebody mentions that she's dead. And I looked over at this person laying there that could have just been sleeping. But then suddenly I was aware that this person had died. And I felt so weird. And I felt so creepy because this person wasn't prepared and dressed up. And, you know, the whole like, oh, they look just like they're, they look so good. The way you do it a viewing. This was a person that was still hooked up to machines and looked pretty bad and was dead. And it was horrifying. And there's a certain smell that comes with death. And I I, I, I thought about that for, for days and weeks. And then I just kept going and doing it. And as a chaplain being called when people were at the end and sitting down with people and you kind of— I don't know. You do a scary thing a couple of times, and you get through it, and it's not as scary. And then once you're less afraid, you start to notice the more holy aspects of it. Um, you know, for example, when a person is dying and they know that they're dying, and they have disavowed themselves of the this mythology that they will live forever, and they know that the end is near. Do you know the kinds of conversations you can have with a person in that state? They are the most honest conversations that that person has ever had in their life and to be able to just speak openly about like hey what do you think it's going to be like later on today maybe even what do you think um those spaces those conversations um it's almost like talking with an astronaut before they they go off into the great expanse you know, you're you're about to go see something that I'm not going to see for a long time, and I want to talk with you about how you're feeling about it. Um, and so I I do this, and I've done this for years. And, um, yeah, this is why most pastors would tell me they prefer funerals to weddings. Um, <laughs> there's less drama, and there's way more honesty, and it's a much more sacred and holy place that that thin space at the end of life.
1: So. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of sad Rachel's not here because I think it's like probably the, like place where like we, we're we going to line up more than she would want to give credit for. I mean, I'll, st- I'll, still, I'll still poke at her, uh, but <laughs> especially because she's not here to defend herself. But um, <laughs> I'm an academic. That's what hmm. we do. Uh, so um, <laughs> what I'm thinking about, mm-hmm. Zach, is like I think this language that both you and Rachel use and I think it comes from a very like pastoral I mean that in the broad sense right a, a, a um, sense of care place to delimit to um, expose a place of scientific overreach which I don't think is like what we would describe it as doing but I think it's implicitly what what's happening right which is, in a sciencey way, right? Life is not dead. How do you define life? It's the persistence of not dying, right? And if <laughs> life is taken as that, it's terrifying to die. But that's a very, I think, particularly in the 20th, 21st century, right? Like, that's a very scientific way of getting at this, right? Um, it's this sense of saying science has described for me the ways in which something is living, right call it biology and and what I think like what I think is interesting is that the pastoral approach that I think both you and Rachel want to take wants to put the brakes on that for a second and say, hold up. <laughs> the, what we think of as living might not line up directly with a definition of the mechanics of a body or thing trying to continually self-perpetuate itself. And on the one hand, those sound like, like okay, so that's how religion is going to do this. And on the other hand, there are these sciency things that you can do, which are great. And you know sometimes great and sometimes we should use them and sometimes we shouldn't but but i think what what i would push on is that i think how we decide when to use and when not to use those medical and scientific interventions lines up with not how we think about death but how we've defined life like by bringing death into a part of life right you've reframed the conversation In a way that you can't in the scientific context, because for something to be dead, be fundamentally not to be alive, right? Whereas that binary gets broken down if you make death part of life.
0: It's best. One of the things that religion is supposed to do is to suppress the ego in a person. So religion is a way of connecting a person to something larger than themselves. And um, one of the ways that my personal religion, my faith, does that is um, through knowing how interconnected that I am. And I mean, in my faith, I'll call that the Holy Spirit. I will also, from my, you know, scientifically, I'll talk talk about the the atoms and molecules in my body that are constantly being introduced and sent back out, and you know, reforming and fighting back against entropy in order to create this thing. Um, but that, you know, stars exploded a long time ago, and those those star pieces made this, and they made countless other living creatures before me, and they will make so many more after me. And so the me, I see as a we. I don't, I'm not so worried about the death of my ego, because my religion has helped me to kill most of it anyway. Um, And so, you know, people talk about having, leaving a legacy, How will people remember me? How will I be remembered? they build these pyramids in the desert because they want to be remembered. The ego has to live on well afterwards, which completely misses the entire point of the interconnectedness of the universe and just the miracle of life. You know, Carl Sagan said that we are a way for the universe to know itself. And I love that. I think that has such, so spiritually profound... At um, those, those atoms that were created in those supernovae are now able to know themselves because of this brief um, instance that we call Zach Jackson. And I love that. And I, so I, I think of death, and this is why I said at the beginning that when I die, I want to be composted because I, when you cremate someone... Yeah, you, know, you lose a lot of a lot of that organic material to the combustion when you bury someone in a like traditionally, uh, you know, you don't give back. And I, I want a hundred percent of of what I am to go back because I want it to live on as it lived on before me.
4: And when you're pressed into a gemstone, similarly, you also live on
0: a hundred percent.
4: I, I mean, I think
2: the.
1: I mean, there's no segue from from <laughs> pressing people's bodies into gemstones that I can that I can make. I so. Yeah. I, I I'm also thinking about the question that Rachel asked Ian, and like where that falls into this, and like how I would think about it, and to to not give the like snarky "I need more information" answer. Like um <laughs> well i I'm I gonna stick with my snarky like I need do? more information, but not in the like not in the sense okay. of like <laughs> okay <laughs> in an almost snarkier sense, don't worry i'm gonna go I'm gonna go deeper, which is to say, like even if you gave me the information, okay, I don't know if I could answer the question one for anyone but myself, and two. For me, this sort of like I, I, I'm i very sympathetic to this idea, Zach, that like death is part of life, right? To overcome that dichotomy, right? And that it has this, that making that movement and using religious traditions to make that movement decenters us in really, really important ways. Um, so mm. I am 100% on board there. It still leaves me with a big lulling question right which is almost I think harder which is then to say like okay well, well then how do you define that living thing? <laughs> like how do you find that living thing that can be subject to death and now it's not just living by being a proxy of not being dead? Um, Like that's the question that, that for me comes immediately after the very pastoral movement that I heard you and Rachel making. And I mean, I think it's exciting because I don't think there are great answers to it, but also I, I would take a stab at answering it, which is, I think what makes Rachel's predicament so difficult to deal with. So I, I would play a language game unsurprisingly, right? Which is to say that we, when we, when we say something <laughs> is living or what it means to live, Right? We can mean it in two senses, grammatically, <laughs> an intransitive and a transitive sense. So we can mean it as something is mm-hmm. alive, right, as a state of situation, or we can mean it as the experience of living, right? So that it's this, this lived experience that one has, not a state of being something, right? So it has these two senses when we use it. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think it's getting into and being cognizant about that sense of the lived experience that's really important. Can I identify a set of experiences that living stuff has that's essential to how I would think about whether or not I'm not actually ending my life as that 29-year-old with the brain tumor who now has pneumonia. But as the 29-year-old with the brain tumor who's now gotten pneumonia, was I already dead? Because I had ceased to do the things by which I would constitute having living experience. So I'm not actually dying in doing that no one's assisting me in dying, I was already dead. Even if everybody that looks around me says, "Aha, you're alive because you have a heartbeat or brain function or this or that other thing." I mean, don't get me wrong, I know this goes down like a an ethical gray gray area might not be the right <laughs> description ethical terror um that, <laughs> that 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 can result, but <laughs> I do think it's really. I think it's really important. It shapes the way that I think about life and, and what it means to live in really really critical ways. Um. So, sorry, now I'm monologuing, right? Yeah. But like my my bit here would be to say like my cheeky answer of like I need more information is that like when Rachel at, puts that scenario forward, what I think about is me at 29. And at 29, I've got a three-year-old kid. And there are a vast number of things that I desire to have in relationship to the people who are in my life at 29 that says, hell no, go treat that pneumonia. But I can also imagine a 29-year-old for whom... Those desires for relationships, which would be really critical to how I would define life, are really gone. And then the pneumonia is is mm. the friend that makes a death that is already realized for that person available to everyone else to mourn.
4: Yeah, I see a lot of what you're saying, Adam, as... Uh, relevant to, like, the way that we kind of started um, in talking about, like, what what are these different kinds of death and that we have, uh, understandably, like, an overemphasis maybe on, like, the physical death um, because, you know, that's, like, our our physical bodies are um, it's what everyone, like, sees and experiences immediately and um, you know, I guess it's like easier to make policies that affect those physical parts well, of like us, other parts
1: right? of us. Like, nobody but, can measure the thing that I yeah, just said. Yeah,
4: exactly. And, and that's what it, like the the scientific piece is. Um, you know, it's far from simple, but it is simpler in some cases um, when you're dealing with like the physical stuff. But that there is, mm. um, you know, we can talk about social death or whatever other kind of death. But I think like what you were just elaborating is um, like what I would call a social death of being totally disconnected, having like no support system and no drive or capacity to be connected to a community or to a support system. And, you know, I get that that can like sound a little dramatic, I guess, to say like, you're socially dead if you don't have those things, but it, I mean, there's no, there's no denying that that makes an impact on people's lives in all sorts of measurable ways um, that like social science has been measuring for, you know, many many decades. And so that there's something about that that feels really intuitive to me, even though yeah, like you said, there's also like all kinds of other ethical conundrums that
1: <laughs> come up. with Also, that. let me just say. I mean, I'm cheating. I did write part of my dissertation on like phenomenologies of life and death. So like, it's not like I just like came out with this quickly. Like, I mean, I've been thinking about it for a decade. So it's, yeah, I, I just, I feel is, like I should out myself. <laughs> in <with> my regard
0: <laughs> <laughs> To do research. Yeah, that is. I should I, hope I we all do research. <laughs>
2: I don't. <laughs> I really wish you'd come up with these answers totally on the fly, so I'm going to have to just uh, dismiss everything you said. <laughs> and...
0: ah, well, I learned all of my lessons <laughs> about death from the school of heart knocks, <laughs> Adam. Out on the front lines.
1: <laughs> I, I, I mean, I will say, too, though, I I do think about it in personal ways, right? Like, my, my mother has pretty severe dementia, right? Which mm. has an interesting place within how people talk about death with dignity, right? It doesn't fit the legalistic framework um, that's been set up for, like, the death with dignity movement. Um, and I think that's, it's, I mean, this sound super cold, and I don't mean it that way, but it's, like, in some ways sort of interesting to see the ways in which um, uh, working with a person who loses mental faculties illustrates the ways in which one's life is not one's own
2: well what is the difference i feel like i know the answer to this but the difference between death with dignity and a living will
0: a living will just says what you want to happen to you right so you know if you're uh, if you're in a state where that sort of thing is legal then you could put that in your living well
2: right well you make the but I mean if you're in a situation like that's where you write down you don't want any extraordinary measures or anything right. like taken, that right. kind of stuff. Right. Which listener, um,
0: if you don't have a living will, it's not hard should. to do and you should you should definitely do it. Um, my wife and I both have it. You never know. You never mm-hmm. know. And it is always better for the people who are trying to take care of you if they know your wishes ahead of time and they're not Every left hospital to just chaplain guess. will thank you. Yep. <laughs> And by having it
2: written down.
0: Yes. Every hospital it, chaplain will <laughs> thank you.
2: Have it officially written down and a living will takes away all those questions. Right. And right.
0: let let everyone know what you want for for your funeral for you know, my mom's been making a playlist for her funeral for years, um, which includes Zombie by the Cranberries, which I, I told her is in bad taste, oh, but she that's, loves that song. <laughs>
1: that's um, I, I approved that decision wholeheartedly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. She at one point wanted uh, Time of Your Life by Green Day. She was going through something in the 90s. Um, uh, until I, know, I, I told her that the, the name of the, the song is actually Good Riddance. And then Time of Your Life. It's a tongue in cheek song, despite the fact that every single graduating class in the late nineties, early two thousands used it in their graduation. It is not what you think it <laughs> well, is. Well you talk or about like
2: <laughs> for some reason it made me think about this, but did you all hear the story of the Irish man who died in two thousand nineteen and he set it up so that when his casket was being lowered into the grave, he had recorded himself? Oh. Because he was no. a, he was a prankster. <laughs> <laughs> and that, as it's going down, all of a sudden you hear his voice being like, hey, let me out. Oh let me God. out. Something like that. <laughs> this is the old school
1: um, uh, bells that they put on compass, yep. right? Yep. Um, the, the soul bell, like, so <laughs> yeah. that, you know, because sometimes they got it wrong that you weren't really dead or people were afraid that they got it wrong that you weren't really dead. So you could ring a bell and they would open the casket real quick. And, you know, usually that was mm. gross.
4: Yeah. No, that is terrifying, which is why if you get pressed into a gemstone and then have the rest of your body buried as dust and death forest, you can then you don't have to worry about that problem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is the reason why Thomas the Kempis is not a saint, despite the fact that he uh, wrote the second best-selling Christian book of all time, The Imitation of Christ. When they exhumed his body, they found claw marks on the top of the coffin because he had been buried alive and they said a real saint would have just accepted his death instead of fighting it and uh so they never canonized him which is bs which is why um i I think i call him a saint when i when i think about it in my book he is and that's all that matters
3: (laughs) right oh boy
0: so yes dear
2: listener if we don't have it in our notes look it up irishman pranks his family at funeral it was hilarious to watch. But the thing is, is that everyone expected it. Yeah. You know, okay. So when so I first if, read it, they all tell expected everyone him to do stuff like that. If you tell oh, no, no, them, no. that's what's going to happen. I don't think happen. they told. I don't think he told them that he was going to do that. I think maybe a few knew, but at least um, they knew he was a prankster, right? And tell life. the funeral he director love telling j- jokes, and oh my gosh, it's so funny. You see all these people just chuckling. <laughs> 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 so yeah, I think I'm going to put someone like that in my <laughs> will so.
0: everyone wants that everyone wants people to laugh at their funeral everyone mm-hmm. I have ever talked to about this they always go I don't want people to cry and be sad at my service I want people to be happy and tell stories and laugh and every single person said this I, and I always tell them do you think there's anyone out there who wants their loved ones to cry no But we're going to, because we're going to miss you. You're not going to be there, so you really don't get a say in this. And I'm going to cry at your funeral, and there's nothing you can do to stop me. And if you want to haunt me, go ahead. I'd actually kind of like that, I think, (laughs) at least for a little while. Don't do anything weird and creepy. So, like, my grandmom told me she doesn't want a service because she doesn't want people crying. And I said, I don't care, grandmom. And she looked at me, and she was like, wait, what? You're wait, no, this is what I want. And I said, I don't care because you're not going to be here. And these services are for the living and not for the dead. And there have been too many times people didn't want to burden someone else by, you know, I don't want them to be sad and then they don't get closure. So I'm all for respecting people's uh, wills and uh, wishes and all of that. But I am not above throwing a gorilla funeral service when I need to. I that. want it to be
2: a—I a, like in the uh, various cultures around the world that treat it more as a celebration of life. Mm-hmm. where they still have the moment in the funeral or something where it is sad and things like that, but that it is a—I remember uh, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Jamaica, that was what they were, someone was explaining to me. It's, it's a celebration of that person's life.
0: I learned recently that the Orthodox Church—the Orthodox Church has an annual feast on the day of a person's death for the first couple of years. Oh. And so— You get your family back together. You have a big meal and you share stories of that person on the anniversary of their death. And I think that's
4: spectacular. And if you're the dead one, that's Mm -hmm. a great opportunity to haunt people. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. So efficient. Efficient. They're all there.
1: That's what everybody longs for.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just get them all in one place. Takes a lot of energy to haunt Adam.
4: (laughs) Yeah.
2: I will have to say, Zach, that um, I do feel like this conversation was probably a little bit more uplifting than the conversation about middle age.
0: Which is hilarious, right? And a part of that, I think, is because I wasn't there. I feel also. I feel happier
2: <laughs> after this one than I did <laughs> at the
0: last one. The middle age conversation was about the fear of death. And this one is We're about the acceptance of death. And once you've accepted it, it's great. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I was going to I was wow. gonna end with a quote that was going to bring us back down, but I guess I'll just leave that off because I feel like we're in a good place. No, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Go ahead. Bring it. <laughs> no,
4: I, I don't know that it fits. It also takes us back to like tier management theory, which we've kind of not really been talking about. So this is good.
0: OK, well, we can end our series with an announcement then that this is the last episode in this mini-series, which will bring us to, I think, just about our two-year anniversary. And so, in celebration of that, and also because we have a whole bunch of professors that are going to be doing a lot of transitioning in this period, and a rabbi who will be entering into High Holy Days, and me, who's just (laughs) doing stuff, um, we're going to... We're gonna put up some of our favorite episodes from the first two years, and um, so if you missed them or um, if you just want to listen to them again, because I've been listening to some of the older episodes, and um, there's some they're made of gems in there, and then after that, when we're gonna, <clears throat> what's that? Yeah, they're made of oh, because they're gems, because <laughs> they're it. gems. Ah, that was a callback. Bum, bum. I got you. Adam. <laughs> Very well played. (laughs) So when we come back from that, we've got a whole slate of new interviews and a new format for the show that will focus around storytelling and um, a variety of new segments, which we're excited to bring you, um, which may or may not include books we've read or demons that we've loved or dead Christians we want to tell fun stories about.
4: And listener questions. Just gonna leave
0: you with that. And listener, <laughs> listener questions. questions. Oh yeah, that's the important one. So we've got a lot in store for year three, and uh, we're excited to bring it to you. Fun Woo-hoo. times.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you got to end it with that.